In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen it's such a beautiful day i hope that the sun is shining the birds are singing the wind is at your back and i have brought to you an inspiration an inspiration that goes by the name of dr david solomon for those who may not know you dr david solomon i know we do this every week but i kind of enjoy it and i think the people should know where they can find you so would you be so kind as to introduce yourself absolutely thanks for having me back on um good to see you again um, I have been uh, in the higher ed world most of my adult life. I am a, I've been a professor of medieval literature, religion, and culture for close to three decades. Um, and currently, I am the uh, director of undergraduate research and creative activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. Um, I still teach classes in our honors program and our museum studies program, uh, originally from New York City. So, uh, being in Virginia, I'm in the, I'm in for, for what a, for what a good New York boy is the deep South. <laughs> yeah. It's um the deep South, the ideas of where we come from and the way in which geography is changing. So too is technology changing and you, Dr. David Solomon have written an incredible blog and it's, it's, it's uh this last week's topic was about the last invention ever by mankind. You want to kind of, Maybe you could pull on that thread a little bit. Well, I mean, there's been so much in the mainstream media just in the last really two or three weeks about artificial intelligence, AI, Um, particularly with the the reporting about this new chat bot called uh, ChatGPT, which uh, has the education world uh, going bananas um, because it it threatens to uh, eliminate and put the end to homework because... It will theoretically, uh, students will be able to do their homework just using an AI chatbot, tell it what it wants, and it'll spit it back out. But it, it's a bigger um, discussion, of course, that's been going on for many years about artificial intelligence and and its role in our society and in our lives. And um, it's probably you know coming to a something of a head in the last few years. Uh, between the the use of algorithms to tell you what movie to watch on Netflix, and uh, you know all, all of the all of the the bots that we have, um, I mean you can't go to a doctor these days without being annoyed for three days afterwards with text messages asking you to fill out a survey. Um, it it it's it's uh it's a lot, it's a lot, and you know part of it is just a fundamental question about what is this going to do to us as uh, as a species as humanity um you know science fiction has long threatened us with the idea that the robots will take over someday and uh you know i mean as we all know lots of science fiction has become science fact so who knows <laughs> right the moon the moon is a cruel mistress you know <laughs> uh, yeah 
you know, it's uh, speak on the topic of medicine. Uh, it seems to me like this is one area where we see tech and government and community trying to find a solution because there's yeah. so many problems with an aging demographic. There's so many problems with disease. And more than that, there's so many problems trying to pay for these things. And it seems like I have gone to the doctor recently for a checkup and I was, I just did it online. You know, I was able to talk to my doctor one yeah. time, another time I just sent like an email and they go, Oh, it sounds like you need these drugs. Here you go. Bada bing, bada boom. And yeah. you know, it's the, the part that really bothers me with, well, there's many parts, but one part that maybe we can, we can kind of dance around a little bit is this idea that the technology is not really built to help people. It seems built to generate profit and that seems to be the rub to me well it's 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 that fundamental question which we brought up last week which yeah. is you know can ai create um it seems like ai can reproduce um but i don't think it yet can create and when it comes to something like medical care um sure i mean i think there are, are really fantastic applications for artificial intelligence in, in the world of medical care these days um but there's always the danger that we're going to uh, allow it to to you know take over, if you will. Yeah. Um, if you think about the um, you know, and and, and you, you think about telemedicine. And telemedicine is exactly AI, but it's the involvement of technology in, in medicine. Um, yes, incredible um, movement to to telemedicine, which you know, of course, COVID. Um, really precipitated and and i mean you know thank god for it because most of us i mean we wouldn't have been able to go to the doctor um i mean i remember during the initial lockdown um i felt uh ill and called my doctor this is before we all had tests at home and and i did a telemedicine visit with my doctor and um you know she was able to say i, I don't think you have covid i think you have a cold you know and uh, amazing but my current primary physician, primary care physician, has now certain days of the week that are devoted to just telemedicine calls. So I was uh, in the office having a, a visit with her a couple of weeks ago, and um, I had a, I have to go back, and the uh, receptionist was scheduling an appointment for me, and I said, well, how about a Tuesday? And she said, well, Tuesday, she only does telehealth calls. I'm like, okay, that, that's a little weird. Um, you know, uh, it, it just, that strikes me as odd. Now, telemedicine is something which is not new. Um, in fact, um, my gosh, in the late nineties, I, uh, had a visit by really the pioneer in the field, a man named Daniel Carlin, who, um, did just incredible work with, the, with this field. I and mean, before it really existed, he had, uh, famously, um, he had a company, he worked out of Boston, and he had a company that helped people who were traveling around the world to places where medical care probably wasn't really accessible. And he would be able to talk with them um, through a, a, a tele kind of portal. Um, we didn't have the internet the way that we do now. We're, I'm talking about 1997, 1998. And um, I found out about him first because there was a story, I think it was on 60 Minutes, famous story at the time about a, a, a guy who was doing a round-the-world trip, solo trip in a boat. And um, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I forget the situation and what exactly had happened, but his arm, he, he, his arm in, in eventually became infected. And um, Carlin, through telemedicine, visits with him and it was very complicated to set up at the time um actually helped the guy to amputate his own arm because he had it was gangrene was setting in and he was stuck out in the middle of the ocean um it was an incredible story and uh, prompted me to get in touch with him and i had him actually visit with a class i was teaching at the time uh through 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 the through an online setup which was very complicated to do in those days um so you know telemedicine is an interesting idea, especially when it's helping people who don't have direct access to healthcare. Um, but when I want to go see my my GP on a Tuesday, and the response is, "Well, she only does telehealth calls that day," that just strikes me as kind of odd. I yeah. mean, I'm not living in 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 the middle of you know uh, 
sub-Saharan Africa. I'm living in <laughs> Newport News, Virginia. Yeah. I, w I would be willing to wager it has to do with price structure. You know, it seems like when I go into the doctor, they only have a few short minutes where they can be in there. They're they're on a clock almost. Like, I got seven yeah. minutes to figure this out, and then I'm at it, and I got another one. Yeah. And so if, if you can, you know, I, I don't know what that price structure would look like or how it works, but I would imagine the more patients, you know, if you one of the big boys like Kaiser that's mixed with the insurance companies, the more people you see, the more money you're making. Sure. But I think that... You know, this idea of telemedicine and the idea of chat GPT and in your blog, you brought up a question that I can't stop thinking about. And it's the question of why like computers don't answer that question. In fact, that right. seems like such a logical left brain. Just figure it out. Like, Don't worry about why. Just do it. And so many of us like the human condition, maybe not all of us, but I, I love that question. Why? And I can't even figure out math problems unless I know why they wrote it that way. When I look at the word problem, I'm like, but why did they choose that word? And mm -hmm. I remember my teacher would be like, it doesn't matter. I'm like, it matters to me because maybe they yeah. want something else. Yeah. But it's this question of why. Maybe you can Yeah, I mean, AI, AI is, is artificial intelligence is good with what questions and, yes. and where questions and when questions. Um, they really can't deal, it really can't deal very well yet with why questions. Because why questions really require a level of, thinking that really is is i i will say as a as, as a non-neuroscientist i think it's unique to human beings um i don't think machines can function at that level um, now maybe someday they can and maybe the folks at M mit would disagree with me that they're they're working on it um you know but <laughs> i mean you know in a, in a kind of funny kind of way i mean i would i would respond to that with well why why do we need that <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, and I'm not sure why we need it. I really don't <laughs> still understand yet why we need it. I don't want to go and have surgery performed by a robot, um, which is where, you know, uh, there are projects that are that are aiming at that at this point. Yeah. Um, and there are some situations where it almost already is a hybrid robot and surgeon operating. Um I don't want to take people out of the loop this morning. I'm sitting in my office here and I heard all this racket outside. What the heck's going on outside my office? And I got up and there was a whole team of people standing there and they are considering installing the robotic vacuum cleaners in my building. Yes. And so two of the people who were standing there were current housekeepers who were watching this and, and i'm just thinking you know well this is going to take away their jobs isn't it um and i i joked with the with the the sales rep and i said i could see kids riding that thing all over the place <laughs> um you know if we were able if we were to get that but why do we need that and again you know so much of it unfortunately seems to be driven by cost yeah it will be more cost effective who cares about cost effective when you are affecting human beings and their lives in, in such a negative way. Um, because, you know, let's face it, the folks who are vacuuming in my building aren't going out and getting a job with Merck. You know, they, they, they have a certain skill level. Um, and it's the same argument that's been made for years about the cashiers and yeah. grocery stores and, and, and Walmarts and the like. Um, I saw a funny meme the other day where someone said that they uh, went into the, the break room at Walmart and somebody said, well, you don't work here. What are you doing here? And he said, well, I just checked myself out. So I'm taking a break. You know, <laughs> it, 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 so I, I just, I, the taking the people out, you know, and so much of this has been about taking the human element out of the loop in the name of efficiency. But that efficiency question is, problematic because what kind of efficiency are we talking about yeah it, it seems to me that um you know i think in steve jobs biography they asked him about cycles of success especially in corporations and what he said is that well corporation begins as an idea with the visionary people that started and they run it up and they build it and they follow the vision of the person that has the idea and they build it to, to a giant success. Yeah. But after a while, after it gets to a certain level, 
The only thing that moves the needle forward on profits is like the marketing and sales team. So the visionaries kick to the side, the sales guys are brought up and marketing right. becomes the main right. strategy. And it seems to me that's what we're seeing in the world of technology. You know, you can bring in vacuum, you could bring in a thousand Roombas, but what happens when the planes shut down and you can't get a battery because right. you can't send batteries on the planes? What happens when there's an, when the electricity goes out? Now, all of a sudden you have the rats pile up and you know, it, I, I could understand the quick hit to the group of CEOs and boards of directors when a guy comes in and says, you no longer have to pay these people vacations. But yeah. that reminds me of the idea. It was Henry Ford and um, you know one of the great union leaders of that time. They were walking down the, the newly minted Ford assembly line. And uh, Henry Ford sa- leans over and he says to um, – the great leader, the union guy that time, I can't think of his name, but he says, how, how are you going to get all these uh, robots to pay union dues? And then the, the gentleman replies back, how are you going to get all these robots to buy your cars? Mm. You know, like we need each other. Yeah. And when we're so top heavy and we're trying to find out ways to secure profit in the name of humanity, we've mm-hmm. gone too far. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of something that we've talked about before, which is that scene in, in Chaplin's Modern Times when they bring in the, the guy brings in this machine that supposedly is going to feed the workers while they're on the assembly line. So they don't have to actually take a break for lunch. They can right. continue working and it will automatically feed them. And the whole thing goes kerflui. But the, the greatest last line is from the boss who says it won't work. It's not, it's just not efficient. You know, nothing about the, the way that it's affecting right. the worker. Right. Um, it's just not efficient. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, th- this question of, of efficiency, and I think you're right. I mean, you know, the split between R and D and sales in most yeah. corporations is really quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and we see it even in higher ed. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. in, in higher ed, I mean, most admissions offices are not staffed by academics. Those are marketing folks. Yep. They're salespeople. You know, and, and and I don't I don't befall them for any of that. I don't begrudge them. I mean, it, it, that's what they do. I mean, that they, they are salespeople. But I think that the thing that worries me a lot of the times is when they're only salespeople. You know, you got to know your product, right? Um, and I and I worry that in some cases, at some institutions, the admissions folks don't really know their product. They're just selling a thing. You know, I, 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 as we've mentioned, I had a bookstore in the 1980s. And now when I go into, you know, the, 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 the only chain bookstore that still exists, um, you know, oftentimes I'm, I'm really aggravated because the folks in there, by and large, most of them don't know a hell, hell of a lot about books. Yeah. Um, they could just as be, soon be selling burgers. You know, it, it, it's, it's just they're selling an item. Um, and so you ask them a question about something and they oftentimes can't respond without having to look it up because they don't really know anything about the product. Um, whereas, you know, back in the day um, when I had my storm, we knew every, every book that we had in the store. Um, you know, it was funny because my, my colleague and I, who, who ran the store, customers used to come in and ask us whether or not we had something in the back. And, you know, we would joke and say, there is no back. This is the back. We never had, we didn't have a stock room. Everything we had was out on the floor. And so they would walk up to us sometimes and ask us for a title, and we would automatically just say, no, we're, we're out of that. We have it on order. And they're like, how do you know? It's like, because I know. I know what's in the store. <laughs> you know, and, and that kind of, of care really gets kind of flushed down the toilet when you go to AI, right? Um, I mean, I think it's interesting that for many years, um, this big bookstore chain, which we all know, um, had computers in their store where you, where the customer could look something up. They they got rid of those a couple of years ago. So now you, if you want to look something up, you have to talk with somebody, a clerk who's there. I'm not sure what the rationale was behind that. It would be kind of interesting to find out if any uh, listeners know. Maybe they they work for for said chain. They can chime in. Yeah, I, I that's a curious thing. I. You and I both have a similar outlook, I think, on AI, but I want to challenge our thinking here. I want us to maybe we can try to steel man the argument that AI is going to be good for the people who have 
the least opportunities. Is that is it possible to steal that man that argument? Can you give an example? I can. So because the world of technology has become so profit-driven and so narrow, it is leaving open wide gaps for people on the bottom that are being pushed out of jobs to use technology in a way that people in boardrooms haven't thought of yet. And that would be like, say there's someone that is was was recently a housekeeper in the at the Hilton here in Hawaii, mm -hmm. and they've gotten Roombas to replace them. Now this person has found a way to use chat AI and the doll E program to put out books about art. You know, I don't, I'm not sure that's exactly it, but that's all I can come up with as a, as a, as an idea, as a creative way. The problem with that is that it's the same problem that we've been talking about for decades. Not everyone should go to college, yeah. right? Not everyone is suited for that kind of work. Yes, there are. And there's no shame in being the person who, right. who cleans up. Um, and when we get rid of that person and replace them with AI, I honestly don't know what the hell they're going to do. I mean, to say, you know, oh, well, you know, you no longer have a housekeeping job. So now you're freed up to go and, and paint. Like, what the hell am I going to do? I'm not going to pay my bills. Yeah. yeah. Right. Where's my health insurance going to come from? Um, and, and so I, I think that what the threat is that it's going to really damage the, the the lower class that it speaks largely to the middle and upper class ai does um and you know i mean the the, the lower class i mean we talk about the and politicians like talk about the middle class being under threat i mean hell the middle class look at the lower class i mean they're really under threat yeah um, they've always been under threat yeah and this is just one more thing that I think they it, it, they have to worry about. Yeah, it's it, it, on some level, I think that it's, you know, the acceleration of problems that nobody wants to deal with, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and we've put it off for a long time. It's not like these problems haven't been evident since before technology started really coming yeah. up. Like we have. We have a war on drugs, but we don't have a war on poverty. And we could with all the money we're printing and all the money we're putting out there. Yeah. It seems like none of that money makes its way to the people that need it the most. Well, supposedly LBJ was worrying about leaving that war on poverty, right? I mean, it just it it seems to have gotten uh, swallowed up. Um, I mean, the, the the you know, as you and I have talked about before, I mean, the, the, the situation with poverty in this country, never mind the world, let's just focus on this country is is really kind of horrific i mean all you have to do is go to any large city and you'll really see the effect of it i mean you may not see the effect of it in your in your small town um, but go to a large city go someplace that that is a place where you normally wouldn't go um likely because that's outside of your sort of socioeconomic parameter and you will really see how how much people are hurting um, I mean, I, I've told you that story about the students in South Dakota going down to the Lakota reservation and getting off the bus at the end of the day and just saying, I never, I didn't even know poverty like that existed. Um, to see it firsthand um, is rather shocking. And yes, we do need a war on poverty. I don't think we're going to get it because we have too much of a focus on uh, wealth yeah. and and. You know, I mean, I, I read last night that Elon Musk now has lost more money in the first quarter of the this year or something like that. It's going to put him in the Guinness Book of World Records. And, and I'm reading the article and I'm like, well, let me get out my violins. You know, <laughs> how much is he worth now? Yeah. I mean, it, and he lost some ridiculous <clears throat> amount of money. But I mean, it, it's a, it's nothing because the man is just disgustingly wealthy. Um, you know, and, and again, not begrudging anybody their, their, their success and their wealth, but what do you do with it then? Um, and what are you doing with it for humanity to help people and to advance things? Um, you know, I don't think that, uh, sending people on, on pleasure trips to the moon is really in the long run going to have a tremendous impact on us as a, as a species, 
and um, it, it, it's just it's really troubling that some of the folks who have the financial ability to make real change are not doing it. They're not stepping up. And maybe it's a difference in, in generation. Because, you know, I, I was reading about, I was reading a book about uh, Susan Orlean's book about the library. I think I mentioned this last time. I think so. Um, about the Los Angeles Library Fire and the history of the Los Angeles Library. And she mentioned, she, she kind of gave a little thumbnail sketch about Andrew Carnegie in the late 19th century when he gave all of that money to open up libraries across the country. I forget the number, some incredible number of libraries. And it was, you had these folks who were true philanthropists. They had made a lot of money, but they also gave a lot of it away. Um, you know, I mean, I, I used to teach at Russell Sage College in upstate New York. Now, Russell Sage College is named after Russell Sage, who was a big uh, 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 train um, magnate in the late 19th century, made his money through, through, through the trains and through uh, transportation. And when he died, he left all his money to his wife, um, Olivia Slocum Sage, Mrs. Russell Sage, and uh, she gave it all away. And if you look around the country, you will still see little things in parks, public parks that are named after Sage. And it, it, that was her money. She gave it all away. Um, that was what she, she became. She was, for a while, the, the richest woman in the country. Um, but she be, was a great philanthropist. And I don't know who the great philanthropists are today. I don't think I could name a single one of them. Um, I mean, at one point we would have said the Sacklers, but that's gone out the window. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it, but the, the, it's true though. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm reading a book of, written by the the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a new book that just came out called "Why Why the Museum Matters," and he's mentioning when the Met decided that they were going to take the Sackler name off of their galleries. And, and I think there were seven galleries that had the Sackler name on them because they'd given money. Um, but I, I don't know who the big philanthropists are today. It's not Jeff Bezos. It's not Elon Musk. I mean, it's not the people that we think of as being the most wealthy. Um, you know, there was a move several years ago, this philanthropist club, um, of which uh, folks like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are part, who who dedicated themselves and said they're going to give away a large part of their fortune, and they have. Um, but the the money that they have is it pales in comparison to the kind of money that that Amazon is making for Bezos. I mean, it's just the money is just it's 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 unthinkable. It really is. It's unimaginable. Um, and the way that it has put so many independent businesses out of business um, is really just absolutely striking. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this last night that, I mean, you literally can go on to Amazon and order just about anything and get it the next day. And sometimes they'll even deliver it the same day. Yep. Um, and so, you know, what is the motivation for me to go down to the local mom and pop store and buy something if I can do it like that. And of course, in most cases, I mean, the local mom and pop store, which barely exists anymore anyway, um, they can't stock those kinds of things. I, I don't know how Amazon has what they have in stock, in stock and at hand to ship out like that and get it to me the next day when it's just, you know, the oddest things that you would you would order. It's, it's, a, it's it, I mean, it really is amazing. And of course, a lot of what Amazon is doing is involved with AI, right? I mean, a lot of it is driven by AI. Um, but, you know, as we've heard story after story, it is not certainly um, helping any of the employees at Amazon um, yeah. who apparently, you know, have a pretty lousy work condition. Yeah, it's you know, maybe maybe that's part of the Maybe that's something that AI could do. I don't think it would unless it was programmed that way, but you know, maybe no one should be, no one can handle the pressure of being a billionaire. Like that must change you in so many ways. Oh, it I must can't make, imagine. Right. It's got I'll a call you on Friday, right Saturday morning. Cause I'm going to win the mega millions. <laughs> I hope you do. Yeah, I hope yeah. you do. It would be, it would be in some ways, like you've heard the curse of the lottery, like people win this sure. and all of a oh, sudden, yeah. yeah. 
People want stuff from you. You probably don't have any friends. We have um, over here, uh, the guy that Larry Ellison, who owns Oracle, mm -hmm. he bought one of the outlying islands from Hawaii called um, Kauai. And he, he took the Four Seasons as his main home because, you know, why wouldn't you? And uh, he's got like this giant aircraft carrier that sometimes he'll sail over to Oahu and park it where the cruise ships park. And I was reading up on him and he's just to give people an idea of how money can change you. And I don't know if this is 100% true. I just read this in an article, so it may or may not be true. But the article was saying that he has a number system around people. And it's like one through five. And if you're a five, you can't make eye contact with them. Like if you work there, if you're a four, you can make eye contact, but you can't talk to them. You know, and if you're a three, you can have superficial conversations. Long story longer, like some of the people in his immediate family are like twos. But then I started thinking like, why would someone institute that system? And yeah. like, why would you even do that? Like, what what are the conditions that make you come up with a system like that? It must be horrendous, yeah. you know. Well, it sounds it's, like a Howard Hughes thing. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, exactly. And it and it is this. I mean, I I think that you know, depending on a person's background, you know, that level of of wealth can probably um, be incredibly isolating yeah. and uh, kind of strip you of of your humanity in some ways. I mean, I think that's why it's interesting that that philanthropy project with Gates and Buffett, you know, that they've decided that they're going to do that now. I mean, you know, of course, as you know, I mean, Gates, I mean, started out in his garage, you know, I mean, he, he came from nothing. And I think it's interesting to see that versus somebody like, like Elon Musk, who um, walked into it, um, you know, largely from, from his family um, was wealthy from the start. Yeah, it's maybe that's the problem. Maybe money, <clears throat> maybe we can use AI. And in some levels, that's, I think the vision of crypto is to take away the corruption out of money. I'm not, obviously they haven't done it with things like FTX or yeah. all these things crashing, but I think that there are, for some of them, I think their heart's in the right place. And the, and the idea is that Look, we don't deal well with money, and it's destroying our society. And but I don't know if we somehow... can ever take the corruption out of money. I mean, you know, that must that just may be the nature of it. I mean, it if you go be. back and look at the history of of you know bartering, and then when we moved to you know trading things like gold for services, yeah. and it became you know it was very different kind of thing. You know, it was, I mean, bartering is I was going to give you something that was equivalent in 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 the 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 value to what you're going to give me whereas with money it's just this strange weird thing i've got this piece of paper yeah that has a number on it and i'm going to give it to you and you're going to give me goods it's it's a very odd psychological thing about how money money works and of course you know we've got a generation now that's growing up in a cashless society yeah and that's also having tremendous impact, right? Is that they, you know, we always, we always used to joke, you know, old people would say, oh, well, you don't understand the value of money. Well, they really don't understand the value of money because they don't have any money. Everything is electronic. Yep. Everything yep. is a credit card. Everything is, is, is something that they, they pay for with their phone. And, you know, the idea of having cash on hand is pretty much um, going the way of the dodo bird. And I think that for kids, that probably is not a good thing. I think it's, I, I mean, there was something too. I mean, George, you know this, you and I, I mean, growing up about having a certain amount of cash. I mean, you had yeah. that cash and when that was gone, that was it. Now I know myself when I first got my, got my first credit card, um, that was a bad thing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> because I'm not stupid, but I ran it up Sure. because it was really easy, really convenient. Um, you know, and I had a huge balance then to pay off eventually i've really run that up and as i say it's I, i'm not stupid but it was just it was convenient and it was it was almost like you know getting the dopamine hit from a like on facebook right yeah because you were able to buy something that you know here's my credit card sure um that's not a good thing i mean i i would love to get rid of and we've gotten rid of most of our credit card we just have a few we really pared it down to what was just absolutely necessary because we had too many. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't necessary. It's a, it's almost a complex system in itself. Like if, if you know, you, there's so many points involved in these different derivatives of money that you could build up for flights and 
know, I read a, a pretty good book a, a couple years ago by Thomas Piketty, who's a French economist. Mm. The book's called Capital. Yep. And in that book, he makes the argument that the state of capital coalesces into two areas, super wealthy and none. And what we've seen over the last 200 years is like this little blip on the scale of mankind where there was a middle class. And if he points to all these different societies and says, there's never a middle class. What we've seen is just this weird anomaly. And he makes the argument and really well, he makes the argument that this is what we're going back to. There's going to be really wealthy people and really poor people. And as yeah. my mind goes down this incredible rabbit hole, it's almost like a speciation. Like if you look at who Jeff Bezos was when he was selling books, if you look at pictures of him then and pictures of him now, like he looks like a different person. Like just yeah. it's it's and what kind of medicine can you you can buy the you know the your growth hormones, your testosterone and all these gene therapies. If you have money, you can buy youth at least to some degree. Whereas if you don't have money, you may be on hold with the telemedicine people. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a story last night that I heard on the news that this new drug that has come out, or that I guess it hasn't come out. I think the FDA is still testing it, the new Alzheimer's drug. Um, the cost is something like $25,000 a month. Wow. I mean, who's going to be able to afford that? Um, it, it, it's, it's nuts. So, you know, you may be right. I mean, it may be a point where, you know, we, the, the species... Gets gets sort of, you know, survival of the fittest, right? I mean, the, it's only the wealthy that survive, and you've got the really poor, or the people who have nothing, who are there not for no other reason than to serve the wealthy. A digital feudalism of, of sorts. Yeah, I mean that's that that that's a frightening fiction <laughs> scenario, um, but I mean it, it it doesn't seem so far from from possibility given the world that we're living in. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think back to the way that, that what we, our generation knows as the middle class, which really kind of took root after World War II with the, the baby boom generation and, and, you know, those, those folks getting back from the war. And if you look back at, as I have in the last couple of days, I've been looking at ads from uh, the, the, the 19, early 1950s, um, particularly ads from the New York City area where all these housing developments were going up, um, a lot of them on Long Island, um, which were being pitched to, towards these the GIs who were getting back um, back from the war. And it was promising them, you know, the American dream. Um, you know, it was this little house with a white picket fence. And um, it's interesting to see how the, the whole question of the American dream has shifted so significantly. Um, we have so many students who write about the American dream and the great Gatsby, mm. you know, but it would be interesting to look at, you know, what happened to the American dream? Because I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if it exists anymore. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it exists today? <sighs> That's a, if, if we're looking at the American dream as maybe getting further along than your parents, and mm -hmm. buying a, a house and having 2.2 kids, I think it exists for a smaller and smaller group every generation. You know, and I, I guess that would be the maybe people are beginning to wake up from that which they thought was the American dream. But it's it can be done, I think. But you have to work hard and you must sacrifice. And I think you have to get lucky. I think that those are the three things you need to have it. What do you think? But, I, but I, I, economists have predicted now that this is a generation, the first generation that's going to be not be better off than their parents. Yeah. Um, which is, 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 is just baffling. I mean, I think the American dream may still exist. Ironically, I think it exists for non-Americans. <laughs> right? I mean, it's yeah, folks who want to come here with this idea of what the American dream is. I'm not sure Americans have the American dream anymore. You know, and I, I would, I see some of the, the, at my work as a truck driver, I see some of the younger kids or some of my friends who have kids. And it seems like on some level, you know, they just don't want to do it. And I get it. Like, I get it. Like it, on some level, it seems that the level of, um, Oh, I don't know the level of, of, uh, what is it called when you, when you, 
when you loyalty, like there's no real loyalty to a company and, and no. nor should there be no. because there's no loyalty from the top. No, you know, the no, fish absolutely. rots from the head down. And so when you see all, all these people just don't want to work, all these people don't want stuff. Well, neither do the people at the top. They've sucked out all the resources at the bottom. It's like a big yeah. game of Jenga. They've just taken all the resources and stacked it right on top. But the difference is that the, the, the previous generation was willing to make a sacrifice. Yeah, I agree. And, and now a lot of people are not willing to do that partially because there's no loyalty. Yeah. Um, and partially because I think they have, have really reflected on what the cost of that sacrifice is. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you always joked about, you know, the house with the white picket fence and the 2.2 kids and the, 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 the station wagon in the, in the driveway. Um, and I think there's a generation that came along and, and kind of took a step back and looked at that and said, is that really worth it? Um, and they, and largely they said, no, it's not. And, um, you know, I think maybe that's part of what, um, put an end to the American dream is they sort of looked at it and said, you know, the American dream that my parents had, that's not my dream. Um, and, and, and thinking about what my dream might be in a society where there's such a, a, a distinction between the haves and the have nots. Um, I mean, there were always poor people, right? There were always people struggling. But if you look at the statistics, I mean, in the 1950s, and let's say there after World War II, I mean, people were doing very well, um, and they were very comfortable and um, seemed happy, at least if, if you watch 50s sitcoms, right? Um, and then, you know, we get to the 1960s, and um, after the Kennedy assassination, and then Vietnam, it just seems like it chipped away at that dream. Um, I think that that's something that, that that's the significant thing about the moon landing, right? Yeah. Is that somehow it brought some of that back to Americans. It brought that dream back. I mean, that's what Kennedy had aspired to when he predicted that and said, by the end of the decade, we'd put men on the moon and bring them back safely. Um, is that that would somehow restore some of that that dream. I mean, if you go back and look at the, the 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 Kennedy years, and I'm not saying that that's that was you know all golden and wonderful, but I mean it was Camelot, right? Yeah. I mean it was it was this. I mean here was this young couple in the White House. It was you know they were still living in the in the kind of the glow of of post war 1950s America, and then it just the rug got taken out from under everybody. Um, after his assassination, and I, uh, I mean, I don't think largely it, it, it's it's the country's ever recovered from that. I think that the Kennedy assassination and then Watergate undermined Americans' confidence in the government to such a degree that it was irrevocable, and I don't think that's ever come back. It, it I, I really don't think it's ever come back. It's, uh, I mean, w you know, if you ask kids today, you know, what they aspire to be, I mean, you know, it used to, I mean, kids used to say, I want to be president. Yeah. Right? I, I don't know if kids say that anymore. I can't imagine that they would. Um, I mean, I know growing up as a kid, I, I mean, I wanted to be president. Um, that was my aspiration. And, and it was Watergate that really um, kind of tarnished that for me because I had lived as a as a young kid with the idea that the president was somebody to be admired and 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 he had all this power and you know he would do the right, always do the right thing and then you realize that that wasn't true um I think that that really chipped away at a lot of people's uh belief in in any kind of an American dream it soiled it yeah it's I think it's it makes me think of the question, like, where did dreams come from? And, you know, when you think about yourself growing up or when you think about a kid growing up, you know, sometimes dreams come from a happy home. And if you look at our country in the in the 50s, it was like we were this wealthy family and everybody had opportunity, like all the brothers and sisters. Hey, man, little Bobby can go out and do the fireman or Ginny can grow up and be uh, the first woman senator or there was all this hope. And we were a big yeah. 
family that had so much that we had so much promise and we had all these dreams and we could get better. But then as we aged as a family, like, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, with Kennedy and, or the Watergate, like all of a sudden the family hit some hard times and now, Hey, maybe, maybe my friend can get Bobby a job at the sewer plant. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah, it seems I, like I, we I fell. A lot, a lot of the hope and the optimism um, kind of got wrung out of the country. I mean, yeah. it's interesting that that people like, you know, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama both tried to bring that back in their campaigns. Yeah. I mean, you know what? Clinton was the boy from hope, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and Obama's uh, motto was, you know, yes, we can. It was it was yeah. optimism. Um, but it just it doesn't seem to be panning out that way. It, 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 I think we've got a very cynical mm. generation coming up. And um, I don't know, you know, again, you know, bringing us full circle, whether, you know, AI is going to do anything to, to rescue us from that, that cynicism and that, that, that lack of hope. Um, we really do need to restore that. But, I mean, it's difficult in our country. It's difficult globally right now, right? I mean, if you, you know, it, look at what's going on around the world, Um but somewhere along the line, it just strikes me that we, we, we jumped the track, you know, everything was going well and something happened to derail it. And, you know, in my mind, it starts with the Kennedy assassination and goes forward from there because the Kennedy assassination then leads to the Warren report, which a lot of people didn't believe, you know, so it was just, it, it was just a snowball effect. Have you read the book, uh, The Fourth Turning by Neil Howe? No. It's a fascinating book, and it talks about the seasons of life. It's really good. You would, you would love it. I, I, I've read it a couple of times, and it goes into the idea of seasons, like giant cycles, and each mm. human being gets to see the seasons, but they get to see it from a different point of view because when you are a young person, you get to see the summer, and maybe – that means when you before you die, you get to see the the spring, the winter, and the fall. But because we go through it at different seasons, mm -hmm. the people that understand how to deal with the crisis of that season, by the time that season comes around again, they're too old to deal with it. So that right. knowledge is gone. And it's it, it makes the more that I see the world playing out, the more that I'm able to see the model that these gentlemen represented. And you know, maybe maybe that's what we're going through. Maybe we're getting yeah. ready to go through winter, and those that have gone through the winter, the silent generation, there's not too many left. And no. so these crises that are happening, the people that are dealing with them are dealing with them from the first time, and it may but not it, be it, the right generation in charge. But it can be a positive thing. I mean, when you're yes. talking about about that that yes. whole idea, it's necessary. Um, I mean, it, it reminds me of Joni Mitchell's song "Both Sides." Now, right? I've seen I've seen I mean the line is I've seen love from both sides now, but I mean, you know, it, 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 I, I used to do this exercise with a class where I showed them a video because, of course, everything's on YouTube now, <laughs> uh, a video of the very young Joni Mitchell singing that song and then of her singing that song some 40 years later and about, you know, the, the difference in meaning for the song given her age, um, that it takes on a whole different tenor. Um, and I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, my, my, my folks who were in my friends who are in classical history like to tell me when we talk about this, that that history does go in in kind of cycles. And, you know, we talk about, oh, well, this is the you know, we had a good run and this is the end of it. And they're like, well, you know, but we've seen this before. Right. I mean, the, the, the Roman Empire fell. Right. right. I mean, and, and, and things worked out. Um, but. And maybe that's true. I don't know. Um, I mean, the, the 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 cynical Jew in me wonders, and 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 I, I'm not sure I buy that. But but think about is. how much of a Brit like you are one of the most my favorite people to talk to, and you have well, such a great. depth of knowledge in so many different areas. Like I sometimes I see see what you're doing as a bridge, like. You are you, as a teacher, as an instructor, as a creative influence on young people. Like you are one of the only people that you, you has this bridge between. You know, your book, "The Seven Deadly Sins," reaches back so far into history and the Renaissance. 
and like look at the material that you're putting out there. You're putting out material that people can resource in order to rebuild something. I get goosebumps talking about it. For those that don't know, David Solomon has written a lot of books, but the one that I recently read is The Seven Deadly Sins. And I would urge everybody listening to this or watching this to pick it up. It it'll blow your mind, but that's, it's a bridge. It's here's how people grew up. Here's how people solve these problems. And I don't know if you see yourself that way, but I think it's beautiful, man. Well, and I appreciate that. Um, I mean, and I, I, you know, for me, that's, that was the shift, right? I mean, I say yeah. growing up as a kid, I wanted to be president and, I, and I'm not saying that as a joke. I mean, my only aspiration was to go to law school and, and go into politics. That's what I wanted. That's how I saw, I saw myself making change. And through a sequence of events as an undergraduate, I realized that there was no way in hell I was going to do that. Um, <laughs> it, it just because in some ways, I think I realized that the, I was idealizing the system. Sure. And when I found out what the reality of the system was, I realized that the change I wanted to affect was not going to be able to right. happen. And so I, I changed tracks and and went this route and thought you know well i'll teach and maybe that will affect that kind of change in some ways and and you do see it um it just it's it's slower right i mean yeah. we, we want everything to happen quickly and it it's not quickly i mean i hear from students from decades ago which i love you don't know, hear about what they're doing and thinking and 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 things they remember from from things that I taught them, and um, you know, yes, that's where I see that I'm affecting change. Yeah. I don't think I would have ever been able to do that if I had followed that original route of of law school and then politics. Yeah, that reminds me. You know, what was the name of the Jesuit professor you had that you oh, sort of looked at? What was his name? Father Logren. Father Logren. Oh, no, no, Father Sweeney. Father Sweeney, my history okay, professor. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Um, so Father Sweeney, who was one of the most brilliant teachers I ever had, but was hard as nails. And uh, and he was the one who who, who said an A means I, I don't have anything to say. Um, if you were an A paper, he just wrote an A on the cover and there wasn't a, a word inside because he said, I have nothing to say. It's an A paper. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that just, that, and it's funny because last night I had a former student come to my museum studies class because this year she's acting as the project manager for the class. And she had on, I, I, I showed you, I give them pins that say A, that have an A on them if they get an A on a paper, because I rarely give a solid right. A on a paper um, because I go on, on Sweeney's <laughs> philosophy. And she was wearing her A button, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, well, that that's like that is the type of influence that I'm talking about, and it's you know generational. Like that particular person or that particular archetype is someone who creates change through the generations. And when you, re I, I I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that book because I it really made me think yeah, a lot good. about it. It's it's a it's a great one, and it comes down it, it ties in the archetypes with young and seasons, mm. and it's like this. It's that missing puzzle piece that fell under the table that you're like, I can't find it, man. Yeah. You know, and finally there it is. But but I think a lot of that bridging is done also by people. I mean, you know, of course. So Sweeney yeah. was the bridge for me, right? Yes. And now yes. maybe I'm serving as the bridge for somebody going for it, it, it's it's that making those connections and allowing that to happen. Um yeah. you know, I I I so wish that I had, had the opportunity to tell him this. Um it, sadly when I finally tried to get in contact with him. He had passed not that long before. Um, but I mean, he would have never remembered me. He, he would, cause I was, I was, I was nobody. I mean, this was a Western civ class. I wasn't a history major. I took him for one, for one, maybe two classes. Um, and that was it. And I mean, he, you know, he would have never remembered me, but it still, I would have, and I, I did, I tried, I wrote him a letter, um, which they sent me back and said that he had passed. Um, to try to explain the the incredible incredible influence he's been on my life as an educator. Well, I think that there's a a beautiful poetic justice there. Like he may have never remembered you, but he probably imagined you because I guarantee you, you imagine inspiring people that you may That's not true. even know. 
Yeah. You know, and no, like that, that's cool. even that's even better in some ways because yeah. you think about giving the tools to someone or inspiring people that may not even know your name right now that are gonna continue to build the bridge over the next chasm. Like that's that is it. Like that is real wealth. That is real structure. That is moving the ball forward. And that is the kind of work that I'm proud to get to sit here and talk to you about because I that's where it's at, man. That is where it's at. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I mean, that's my goal is as an educator and, and having gone into this field is to to affect change for the future in this way. Um and and you do, it's just that as I say, it, it's slow and it may not, you yeah. know. I mean, it's been what? It's been Good Lord, it's been 40 years since I sat in Dr. Sweeney, Father Sweeney's class, you know. Right. Um, so it takes a while, you know, that 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 it has to percolate, right? It has to it has it to does. cook. Um, it does. And you know, too often we want to see the the immediate thing. I mean, we were talking about this a, a couple of weeks earlier when we talked about the 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 power of a liberal arts education. Yeah. Problem with that is you don't often notice that until decades later. Yeah. You really have to follow people to be able to see how it has affected them and how it's been successful. You're not going to see it next year. Right. Um, it's, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's in, in my darker moments, you know, when I'm, when I find myself with my hand, my head in my hands on my knees and I'm cynical and I'm thinking about like, what am I doing? You know, I, I often find this weird humor that bubbles up and it's like, you're not supposed to know. Like, and I started thinking about these ideas of like, maybe you influence somebody 10 years from now that you've never even met. And like I start laughing and it kind of, it kind of brings me back out of it. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, what, what am I doing? What am I talking about? Yeah. You know, it's, it's beautiful to think about, but it's, it's, it's even more beautiful when I get to see it in other people and, and get to hear stories about it and understand that maybe we are making the radical change, but it's so incremental that you don't yeah. see it. And you're not, maybe you're not supposed to see it. Maybe you're, it's not for you to see. No, I think you're right. I mean, it it, it is incremental and it is gradual, and yeah. um, you know, I I guess you have to have faith that that you're that you're making a difference. I mean, certainly there are times when it's difficult, right? I mean, when you're sitting there with your head in your hands and thinking, you know, geez, <laughs> you know, what a lousy day this was, and right. I didn't, you know, at the end of the day, you oftentimes when you're looking in the mirror, you kind of reflect on, well, you know, did, did I sort of justify my existence today? Yeah, um, you know, and and course most days you, you're like well i didn't really do a whole hell of a lot yeah. and then you know you, you kind of reflect on it but um i think you're right and 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 part of that speaks to something else which we've talked about often which is you know where ego gets in the way there yeah right? absolutely um, and what you know what motivates us to do those things is it because it's feeding our ego or is it really helping others yeah and i this may be a little woo woo, but I, I think you'll, I think you may understand and, and, and maybe even I'll just throw it out there. So the same way the butterfly comes to visit you when your aunt passes away, I have found too, that through some of my darkest times, whether, or, you know, if, if I'm having a tough time at work or if it's just been one of those days, I get a message, you know, whether it's the tree brushing up against me and then there's the caterpillar right there. And I just, busted out a caterpillar metaphor on my last podcast you know it, it's like there's something bigger there's something reaching out that's trying to get your attention and i find and i to everybody listening i promise you if you just open your eyes to everybody watching pay attention to what's happening to you when you're outside because i think there's something trying to get your attention and if you listen to it 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 makes sense i know it's kind of a generic all around thing but yeah. it's there there's a language there no, I think you're right. I mean, it, and it, it it it's 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 the importance of looking for symbols. Yes, I mean it's it's not going to smack you in the face and say, "Here it is." Right there here. You go. Oh yeah, what a brilliant <laughs> book. Yeah, brilliant book. Beautiful. That's a beautiful copy too. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's the importance of of recognizing symbols. Yeah. And thinking about you know, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Um. You know, scratching the surface, right? Looking a little bit deeper. Yeah. That you know, that butterfly is not a butterfly, right? Um, and, you know, like you say, you know, I, I love your 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 very accurate way of saying we're getting too woo about this. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, on, on one level it is because it's kind it of is. like you say, oh, well, come on, you know. But that's what symbols are about, right? That's right. 
and meaning, right? Like yeah. you can't control the events that happen in your life, but you and you alone get to control the meaning of that event. And that's all we Absolutely. have is the meaning of it. And if you start choosing the meanings, you could, you're choosing your life. You're choosing to build the bridge. You're choosing to take your life in the only direction that you can. And that's, that's where the meaning comes into. But as we're getting ready to land this plane here, Dr. David Solomon, you know, I don't know if you saw some of the comments on LinkedIn, but one of the top ones was more David Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what do you got coming up? What's up with the new books? What else? Do you got any speaking gigs coming up and where can people find you? And what are you excited about? Yeah, my website is uh, David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. And uh, links to all my books and um, speaking engagements and the blog and consulting are all there. Uh, we've just started the, the new semester here, so I'm excited about that. Met with my class for the first time last night. Um, we had a great time, and uh, I'm very excited about this exhibition that they're going to be going to be curating. It's a museum studies course. Um, still plugging away at the books and and working on on two new new things that hopefully will be out. Uh, I hope next year. Um, but uh, it's uh, writing is a struggle, right? You know, um, you know, was it? Uh, I forget. It was it's either Hemingway or Dorothy Parker? Or was that you know? It, it's spilling the blood on the on the page, right? <laughs> um, it's it's hard. You open up a vein, you know. But uh, but happy to be 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 on with you and talk to you every week, George. Yeah, me too. I I I um, I really enjoy it. You're one of my favorite people to talk to, and I I like us hoping to solve the world's problems in our own small way <laughs> at least in our, our world problems you know that's what I mean? true so that's what we got for today ladies and gentlemen check out the books go to the blog i i would point everyone to the blog to read more about the chat gpt there's a lot of stuff in that blog that we just barely scratched the surface on it's a fun read it's entertaining and um I, you guys should subscribe to it and check it out and uh Reach out to me or David. We'll be back next week to uh, continue to solve the world's problems for everybody. Thank you all for your time. Aloha. Hi everyone, 
Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.